Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivienne Marks. This podcast is with and about two scientists and about space, space in biology, actually. You'll meet Patrick Stahl. He's on the faculty of KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, Sweden, and Frederick Salmin, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Hubricht Institute in the Netherlands. They will talk about a field. I mean, the whole field is, is really, it's, a, it's an awesome field. That's Patrick Stahl. Their work led to a major publication in the journal Science, and they are both joint first authors of this paper. We share the honor. <laughs> awesome. And the pain. The honor and the pain. That's research for you. Just briefly before we get to that about this podcast series. In my reporting, I speak with scientists around the world, and this podcast is a way to share more of what I find out. This podcast takes you into the science, and it's about the people doing the science. You can find some of my work, for example, in nature journals that are part of the nature portfolio. That's where you find studies by working scientists, and those are about the latest aspect of their research. And a number of these journals offer science journalism. These are pieces by science journalists like me. This podcast episode is one of several I'm producing about space in biology. Months ago, I interviewed researchers who work on spatially resolved transcriptomics for a story. And in my slow, pokey DIY podcast production, this is part one in a series about this field of study. So, Patrick Stahl and Frederick Salmain, here they are introducing themselves to help me learn how to pronounce their names. Frederick, you go first. Okay. Fredrik Salmen. Wow, Fredrik Salmen. Oh, ah, it's good. It's yeah. good. It's like okay. Viking. All right. This is good. I'll have to practice. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, English is Patrick, but uh, now here is Patrick Stål. Patrick Stål. So, no T. Stål. 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 Okay. All right. You have to brace yourselves. Stål means uh, steel in English. Ah, stål. Patrick Steel, but it's oh. Patrick Stål. And wow, I apologize. Despite their lessons, I am doing the Swedish pronunciation of their names badly. I hope they and Sweden will forgive me. So I interviewed these two Swedish scientists together, and when we started to chat, I noticed a poster on the wall behind Fredrik Salmin. It showed a surfer riding a big wave. So I asked about that. Fredrik was actually a quite, uh, we say, uh, advanced surfer, like um, wave surfer at the time when we started this project. So yeah, it's true. He's actually, rightly at the beach. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, it's actually me on the, on the picture. Yeah, it's a little bit self-centered, I guess, to have your your own picture on the wall. But uh, it's fun, though. It's uh, you where was was this taken? Sea. This is actually Sweden. So it's the wow. the Baltic Sea. Yeah. The Baltic Sea is cold. You need to wear a special suit if you want to surf there. Yeah, it's like a frog suit with hood and gloves and boots, yes. everything. Yeah. So do you still do this or, or? Yeah, yeah, I still do. I'm a little bit, uh, I would say, uh, much less uh, nowadays. And uh, I'm also a little bit heavier these days, so. 
not as agile anymore, but still, when I get the opportunity, I try to surf, yeah, it's nice. The two researchers work together along with many others, but their connection was quite intense and you will hear more about that in this podcast. It was work that took around six years and led to a publication in the journal Science. And that publication kickstarted a field and there was a company spin out too. The field of study is called Spatially Resolved Transcriptomics, and it was crowned a Nature Methods Method of the Year. In this area of spatially resolved transcriptomics, scientists want to know where something takes place. It's part of understanding larger issues, such as why does the head grow where it does? Why does a part of the brain develop where it does? Why does a tumor grow where it does? It's genes that tune such events. Genes are turned on or off. They are expressed at high levels or low levels or silenced. Their expression can shift. With gene expression, it's like tissues are playing a kind of music, just one you need to find ways to hear. Patrick Stoll and Frederick Selmin and their colleagues found one way to do just that. The work took place in Sweden. It involved surfing the cold waves of the Baltic, as you've just heard. It's about friendship, it's about patience, about science careers. If you're interested in any of that, as well as biology, genomics, and imaging, please stick around. So this work in particular took six years, and Frederick Salmin and Patrick Stahl worked intensely together. They are the first authors of this paper in science published in 2016, and it led to a company called Spatial Transcriptomics. What these scientists and their colleagues developed was a way to see where, for example, in a tissue genes are expressed. It's not the first way to do this, but it was a way to analyze a lot of mRNAs, a lot of gene transcripts at the same time. To understand why this matters, we can step back for a moment and consider a practical example that they told me about. A pathologist gets a tissue sample. It might be from a person who was just on the operating table. The tissue is prepared with chemical stains and then studied. The pathologist interprets what is going on in this tissue. Sometimes pathologists look at many tissue slabs from many patients and want to compare them. In other cases, it is information that has to travel quickly to determine how a patient might need to be treated. Or the analysis is for a basic research lab that is studying a particular disease or development. As Patrick Stahl explains, scientists can look at a tissue slide and use stains and dyes to see what is happening there. Well, sort of. This immunohistochemistry doesn't always answer all the questions a pathologist or other scientists might have. So, so uh, I, I think this was like late 2009, uh, and it was uh, you know Jonas Frisén, who is of course you know uh, working, uh, uh, a stem cell professor working at Karolinska Institutet, who is you know subjected to this kind of immunohistochemistry a lot during his daily work. Uh, and I think that actually he was the one who like first grew tired of of, uh, of uh, you know lack of spatial information that you could get out of a stain, and so late 2009 he contacted Joachim Lundeberg, uh, and then and then they together in early 2010 initiated this project. Uh, you know, trying, and then they had this idea, basically, you know, this uh, putting barcoded RP reverse transcription primers uh, in a, in an ordered fashion on the surface, 
And then early on they, they then brought in Fredrik uh, uh, as a master student. Uh, and uh, at the time I was not involved. I was still writing my, my PhD thesis. At the time, Fredrik Salmin was a master student at KTH and Patrick Stahl was a PhD student at KTH. He remained at KTH after his dissertation in 2010, then started on this project. During the gist of this project, Frederick Salmain became a PhD student in Joachim Lundeberg's lab at KTH, and Patrick Stahl was a postdoc in Jonas Friesen's lab at Karolinska Institute. This was a collaboration between university labs. Sci- Science for Life Laboratory, where we are sitting, that's like a joint effort between uh, Royal Institute of Technology, KTH, and then Karolinska Institute. KI and, uh, and Stockholm University, uh, which means that we were all sitting together, uh, more or less. Uh, uh, Jonas uh, Fysén, he, he had a separate lab also, sort of up the hill, uh, but quite close uh, to where uh, the rest of us were sitting. The approach the scientists developed involves working with fixed stain tissue and getting landmarks of gene expression. This is how it works. The tissue is imaged then treated so it becomes permeabilized. That process releases the mRNAs that move down and attach to an array that is below the tissue. This array holds barcodes. The mRNAs get stuck in place. At the spots where they are fixed, the mRNAs are reverse transcribed, the tissue is dissolved, and what you're left with is spatially barcoded complementary DNA affixed to an array. Then you can use sequencing. When the complementary DNA is sequenced, you get spatially resolved transcriptomics. The barcodes are identifiers for the mRNAs. So the platform tells you which genes are where because you have the original image tissue slide as a kind of reference. That's the science paper. The team had set out with ambitious goals. They had wanted to capture the mRNA from every cell in the tissue, and they wanted a lot of other things. Here's Frederick Salmain. We, we really wanted to aim for single cell at the start. And this is, I mean, now you can see this is not what we published in the end. In 2016, we went for some kind of larger spots around 100 micrometers. Uh, but early on, we really wanted to go down to, the, to that level. And it was, it was very tricky because we didn't have the, the technology ourselves or the knowledge how to make them. So we had to have collaborations with companies and other, you know, uh, groups that could do this. And it, yeah, it turned out to be extremely hard to make a race that has these small uh, spots to capture single cells, uh, and at the same time have great uh, quality. So great quality on the the these reverse transcription probes and a lot of them on the surface that we needed. Um, that is one of the issues. Uh, another one was the diffusion. So we were we were bo- worried that we might have diffusion. So to get RNA out from the cells, you had to permeabilize them somehow. And we didn't know if they would, you know, if the cell just burst and if everything just floats away and hybridizes wherever on the chip, or if it actually, you know, went locally and just to the to the closest spot. They also had to worry about transcripts floating away and not drifting down onto the array from the location they had in the tissue. Here's Frederick Salmin and Patrick Stahl. 
Yeah, so if they would move uh, uh, horizontal, right, you have a problem because then the whole spatial information, yeah, exactly, are, uh, is gone, right? Because if one cell here is and the capture area is here and the RNA go like this, then you have expression of this cell, this cell over there. But I mean, it will probably spread more everywhere, so you will have a a mixed uh, expression pattern across several cells or, or larger areas. When we when we started doing this, I mean, there were not because of the things that Fredrik explained. There, there were not many people that thought this was going to work because yeah. essentially you put tissue onto a micro you know, a microscopic glass slide and you treat it with enzymes to make essentially the molecules go out of it or at least you know not stick so hard. And obviously, then every everyone thought that this diffusion was going to go you know crazy. Uh, but then uh, we early on, uh, Fredrik actually came up with a very good trick, and that was to do the initial reaction where the, the mRNA from the cells meets the probes on the surface, was to do this initial reaction, reverse transcription reaction, using fluorescent nucleotides. And so and when you do that, you actually get a very nice, which is figure one in the science paper, you actually get a very nice a uh, fluorescent footprint of where everything went. So where were you actually able to capture that? And that was, for us, that was you know, a, a, a gigantic stepping stone into getting the rest to work and into getting everyone's kind of you know, appreciation that this actually was gonna work. That was a, a very big sort of uh, point uh, for us. I remember what you say, Patrick. It's it's nice because I remember the non-believers in the lab, yeah. and the, you know, they, they were all just at that point convinced, more or less, that yeah. it might work, uh, and that was that was nice. The approach they developed brings together imaging and genomics, computing, and an old way of capturing gene expression, namely microarrays. The new approach melds all of these together. Too. I mean, we were essentially, you know, bringing together kind of the best in microarray technology with the best in imaging, with the best in sequencing and with the best in actually in bioinformatics analysis as well. Because, you know, we were doing barcoding, we were doing unique molecular identifiers, so kind of everything at once. And, and as you say, I mean, I think that gave us a huge uh, head start in a way in the field, uh, the melding. Yeah, the microarray provides expression, right? But they don't provide the spatial. Uh, yeah, but what we did in the project was combining the two. Um, and like Patrick said, with the sequencing, which is what took over a little bit after the, the microarrays, right? For the actual expression. Because the approach was so new and different and unlike other methods, the team didn't have an easy time to publish it. Uh, I mean, we had a pretty rough kind of, uh, say, I mean, run to publish. I mean, it, it could have been smoother, you know. Uh, we, we had some pretty critical reviewers at one point, you know. Science was, I mean, science was a pretty, I guess, regular process, but we were actually, um, we had submitted to another magazine before that. And there, I think, the feeling was we experienced a little bit of like this that every scientist fears, which is this peer review process where 
you're un, you're unsure about everyone's motives because it was mm-hmm. like I mean this was clearly very novel. But yeah. Uh, but but I mean but apart from that, I think everything was very positive. You know, in, in conjunction to the publication. This project took a long time, and the two scientists were both starting out. And I wondered how this has all shaped their career. Um, yeah, I definitely feel it was career maker for sure. I would say so. Not only the outcome of it, but the whole process. Uh, so how much we actually tested, you know, how much the things we learned in the different fields, working with with tissues and sequencing simultaneously, like you say. Uh, traditionally to, to separated areas uh, and then of course also in this field is always counted the scientific output right so if you publish something high you're very likely to to get you know your your the next position in the, in the sort of ladder so so i think but if, if you only look at the output you know what's on the paper but you didn't actually learn anything then i think your career probably is gonna maybe slow down or stop a little bit after that because you don't have any anything to build it on. But I think, at least for me, I learned so much during these years. Um, and I agree, you, you definitely learn like what it's be, like to be on that level, like to, to try and try and do really high level publications and all the effort that goes into it. Uh, and, and then also like learning of the, because being a technology developer, I mean, can sometimes be kind of Difficult. You're not getting you know that many grants for pure technology development, and you know it's gruesome. You can do a super nice method, but it's not going to be used anyway. Yeah. So, so this was like really, yeah, this was kind of a testament for us, you know, that actually can pay off. And, you know, and and sure, like for me also, definitely, you know, a career maker. I got my postdoc grant based on this i got you know a starting grant based on this uh you know position at kth uh, you know as uh, now i'm associate professor so yeah it's like of course you know it's you can't complain although although i mean as Friedrich says it's it was a lot of work yes, and of it took a long time actually When you develop a method, you want it to be used. You don't want to be the only researcher using it. There is one circle of users, Frederick Salmain and Patrick Stahl would love to help. They dream about helping pathology use this kind of gene expression analysis, maybe even use it to the point at which pathologists no longer need imaging. That is a tall order, of course. The big thing as a technology developer is to see your technology used somewhere else. And, I mean, that's the ultimate proof that you know that you did something that that that's actually good. Uh, and I guess that uh, that came after a while. Uh, you know, uh, people were able to start using these IRAs in other uh, other parts of the world. So yeah, maybe it sounds a little bit like a cliche, but uh, I would like to see it be used in pathology. Um, so I think that was a little bit of the of the idea when it was you know when the when the concept was uh, created that it would replace or at least complement uh, the uh, pathological analysis uh, you know to the, in, instead of the stainings in the future. So obviously it's not the case at the moment, but this is where I would would love to see this actually take place. And it would be nice if that could add you know another another level to how the how the treatment. Uh, selected and, and help help out in the future. That, that's yeah. what I would like yeah. to see. But, yeah. 
Yeah, we had this little uh, dream, or we still do, about like something we call digital pathology, essentially. And you know, like this technology allowing like an unbiased, you know, analysis of the tissue, you know, almost with the appropriate resolution, almost without having an image of the tissue, you could actually be able to like just computationally deduce, you know, based on the gene expression patterns, you know, uh, what areas of, you know, without even staining the tissue, what areas are actually, you know, part of. Uh, of what subclone of tumor, for instance. Uh, but but we also like we had a lot of discussions early on, and we also realized that like for this concept to come alive, uh, you know that would have to be kind of adopted by the pathologists, and and you know making them, I guess, uh, you know, lenient to rely on this type of data because, th- and, and that's going to be a difficult trick. You know, uh, they are used to kind of being, in, you know, in control of, you know, annotation and, and not leaving that into like, you know, a machine do it. Although uh, we think, and we also think that we have shown in a few of the papers now uh, that that uh, sometimes the spatial data can actually be more accurate than the manual annotation. This is something for the future, not the present. A lot is needed to get there less tissue staining and more use of just gene expression data and a certain resolution and a cultural shift. Here's Patrick Stoll. I think that, uh, I think, I mean, like the obvious one is to have no resolution at a suitable level. Uh, I'm not necessarily a fan of having no maximum resolution, like one, two micrometers. I think that that may even be like counterproductive. I think that you know, maybe like single cell, like 10 micrometers, maybe the sweet spot, like because you want also to have enough data kind of linked to every pixel. Um, so I think you know, that, that's like the, you know, the, the lowest hanging on the wish list, I guess. You know, then uh, if you look at the, the, you know, the commercial version that 10X released, the Visium, one, you know, then obviously they have improved the, the, the efficiency, like the sensitivity quite a lot, you know, with some upgraded enzymes in there, I think. Uh, and, and so, so that's kind of, I mean, partly taken care of, I guess. Uh, and, and then, I, yeah, I guess people would like additional stains and, 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 and then additional applications. The technology led to a spin-out called Spatial Transcriptomics. That company was bought by 10X Genomics. That was in 2018. And there is a continued connection to 10X Genomics. Uh, yeah, so so um, 10X and, and KTH, and so my university, uh, uh, we, uh, we have like a collaboration, uh, so no, like an academic collaboration, essentially. Uh, so we have some involvement based on that. The technology is commercialized and out there, and it seems to the team many labs are using it. When mRNA is synthesized in a cell, it is processed. One end ends up becoming polyadenylated. At one end, the RNA molecule will have a series of adenine molecules, maybe 50 or even 200 of them. It's called a poly-A tail. This tail helps to stabilize mRNA. 
Patrick Stahl talks about how labs are using the technology, his lab and others, and about the importance of the poly A tail. Yeah, so I, I think like on, on the level of like current application areas, uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously internally we are we like we essentially have projects in in within everything. I mean, everything from you know organelles to cancer to to plants uh, to you know developmental tissues. Uh, so, so really everything, and 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 possibly even you know uh, other vertebrates, uh, uh, and obviously mouse and so on. But but I mean even other other, uh, and so uh, uh, I guess you know statistically I guess you know uh, 10x have the figures on you know where they are selling their you know their products, uh, but. My general view is that it seems to be kind of very widely adopted at the moment. I mean, because you have this kind of, you know, general capture capability, right? It's, you know, uh, capturing anything that's polyatailed. Uh, so, so, and I guess people are still kind of trying it out for uh, anything. Uh, and, and, and obviously, and then, you know, like you have this, Kind of crossover from you know people that have been running like single cell, uh, you know stuff, and now they want to do spatial, and then you have you know a lot of people kind of integrating. I think starting to integrate spatial and single cell data, uh, which is really cool because uh, single cell data works you know as as a kind of very neat validation or even resolution enhancer of the spatial data. Uh, we're, we're, so, so they're working very well together, it seems. The technique they developed is a wet lab process, and it also has a computational side. To analyze these data takes software and computational power. I think we could easily have, you know, as many computational people as we have in the lab. I mean, there, there are enough things to do. I mean, it's really... You know, I think it's structured differently in, in different research groups. Like in our group, we we try to let them and all the PhD students can now learn, you know, all parts of the process, so they get proficient in the bioinformatics part as well. And but 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 you can see that like once they generate a data set, you know, a couple of data sets, you know, they then they they can sit for a while, you know, with the data processing. It's not that straightforward because you essentially, especially for new tissues, you have to come up with like what's the best way of doing this you know uh, are we gonna i mean before Fredrik left we also had this project and we we're gonna predict uh, like immune cell uh, you know patterns in in uh, in different tissues so yeah there are tons of things to do on both ends developing a technology takes patience and stamina I think what's interesting maybe for listeners to hear is kind of a little bit like the, I mean the process of actually developing you know a technology or a protocol like this, and kind of you know how how hard we struggled uh, because it was a long struggle. I mean we have a, like there are a couple of anecdotes around this. I don't know, Fredrik, do you want to say anything around that? Because you were I mean yeah. you were constantly well, in the lab. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, as a PhD student, also you're 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 expected to be in the lab, uh, long hours, right, and late. Um, but also, if you have a passion for what you're doing, that then it's you know then you don't mind to do it. But like Patrick said here, method development is 
it, it is tough. It's 95% of your stuff are gonna fail. 95% of what you what you try are gonna fail. And we're not talking about fail for six months. We're talking about fail for like four or five years maybe. And so so you have to you know keep on at it. Um, and I think if you have the motivation, it's easier. If you don't have the motivation, of course, it's it's uh, yeah, it's, it's much tougher. This kind of science is about people working together. You need a good group, and I, I think we had uh, like Patrick and me, and we had so much brainstorming meetings all the time, and obviously other people also. And yeah, I think it was very supportive environment in general for the project. And that's very important. If you're by yourself, if you be only one person driving a whole project, then it's probably not going to go far, I would say. Yeah, no, we had we had many, many talented people, like PhD students and, and then postdocs and PIs working very hard on, on this for, for a long time. And we kind of said, like, not to mention anyone so that we don't forget anyone, you know, but <laughs> I think everyone knows who they are. So. And I, there's like an anecdote, which I think is fun. It's like, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Fredrik, he had like a few of these like office binders filled with bioanalyzers, uh, bioanalyzer traces. And everyone who's running bioanalyzer, they know like you get like a you know, one pager or two pager or something like that with all your traces. And like, we were, <laughs> he was essentially filling these up, you know. And there must have been like hundreds of, I mean, it's crazy really when you think about, because, because, you know, it's one thing to make it work, but it's another thing to make it efficient enough that you want to publish and you want to like go out there and, you know, and show the world what you've done. So in that way, maybe we were too perfectionist, but I think it paid off in the end, actually, in this case, because people could adopt this, you know, from, from the, like the first day or less. Looking back, they see how the field has evolved. I mean, the whole field is, is really, it's, a, it's an awesome field. And looking back at the process, they are both proud of the work and their continued connection. They share first authorship of this paper. We share the honor. <laughs> awesome. And the pain. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Patrick Stoll at KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden and Dr. Frederik Salmin, a postdoctoral fellow at Hubrecht Institute in the Netherlands. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, these scientists and their institutions did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. Thank you.